Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Christopher Lee. Welcome once again to a webinar series on COVID-19 from the ICR at NIH. Uh, this webinar is co-organized by the Malaysian Society of Infectious Infection Control and Infectious Diseases, my ICIP, and the ICR. Uh, this week, we have a speaker who is very experienced looking after COVID because he comes from a hot state. Uh, okay, not as hot as Selangor is now, but the previous hot state of Sabah. And he's none other than Dr. Lee Hengi. Now, uh, Hengi trained uh, with the ID team at Hospital Sungai Bolo in his training years. And subsequently, he completed his training in infectious diseases at the National University uh, at Singapore. And of course, I think all of us are familiar with him because he has been integrally involved in the care of patients with uh, COVID-19 in Sabah, uh, especially during the peak last year. Now, today, last week, we spoke about the clinical management of COVID-19, uh, and we talked about the acute management. But I think all of us who have been managing patients with COVID-19 realize that the story doesn't end there. For those patients who survive the infection, many of them face a very complex and convoluted recovery period. Uh, I have been helping to look after the patients who have recovered from COVID-19 in Hospital Sungai Pulau, um, and especially those who come out from ICU with categories four and five, they struggle for a very long time uh, during their recovery period. And it's still a very new disease. We have Every few weeks, we hear of something new that might be due to COVID-19. And certain things, certain part of the science is fairly well written out, but certain parts of the science is still very new. So we thought it would be a good idea to look at COVID-19 with regards to its complications. And so we have asked Dr. Lee Hengi from Queen uh, Elizabeth Hospital in Kota Kinabalu uh, to share with us uh, this uh, very complicated topic. Uh, I don't envy him uh, to, to do this, but you are, we are all in good hands because certainly he has had a lot of experience in the last one year. So without further ado, I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Lee Hengi uh, from Kota Kinabalu uh, to take over the mic. Hengi. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Chris, for the introduction. Uh, welcome to everybody to the webinar. You got your slides yet, uh, Ingi? Um, uh, can can you see the slides? Um, today, my my topic um, is recognizing the complication of COVID nineteen. Uh, this uh, the hospital that I'm working at the moment, uh, Queen Elizabeth Hospital. So this is the outline of my presentation today. We'll talk about the pathophysiology um, and then we'll talk about the clinical spectrum of COVID-19. Then we, we divide the complication uh, based on acute and the more long-term complication of uh, COVID-19. So uh, in order for us to understand the complication of COVID-19, I thought it's, uh, it's uh, beneficial for us to go back to the basic pathophysiology of COVID-19. So the main purpose of the virus is to enter our cells, uh, hijack it, and then uh, make more new viruses. So what the virus has is the S protein, and what our cells have is the ACE2 receptor. So uh, what, what happened during the process, um, the TMPRSS2 will prime the S protein, which subsequently bind to the ACE2 receptor. And, what, and once that occur, the, the virus will be able to enter the cells, release the RNA, and then use our cells mechanism, um, mechanism to produce viruses. But in the process of uh, doing that, um, the virus actually damaged the cells in our body. 
um, actually many cells in the body, especially the epithelial cells in the upper and lower respiratory tract contain ACE2 receptors. Not only that, we, we also have endothelial cells in the blood vessel who also contain many ACE2 receptors. So once the, the virus invaded the cells, uh, it damaged the cells, it caused inflammation, our body will recognize the foreign antigens and start to mount an immune response, causing more inflammation, release of cytokines, and ultimately leads to tissue damage, inflammation, exudate, and thicken interstitium if this process is not well controlled. So at the later stage of the disease, we can see there is increased vascular permeability uh, leading to pulmonary edema, and then there's a thickened interstitium which impaired oxygen to the lungs and the body. And over the right-hand side, we can see the increase in the cytokines leads to activation of the coagulation cascade. And this leads to microthrombus formation and pulmonary embolism as well. So uh, what are the phases of COVID-19? So um, this not to be confused with the staging of severity. Um, during the initial phase, stage one, there's a viral response and then if the disease continues, then the patient progress into stage two, which is the pulmonary phase. And if the disease is not controlled and the inflammatory process continue, then it can lead to a very dangerous stage, uh, stage three, which is called hyperinflammation. And during that time, our patient can have ARDS shock and cardiac failure. So um, over the right-hand side, Um, I put there's a clinical syndrome called Miss C and Miss A, uh, which usually occur during the late uh, stage of the disease. So multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children and adults. So very important for us as clinicians, whenever we see a patient, to try to visualize and imagine where our patients are headed at, at that point, because we can predict many of the clinical manifestation and complication based on the phase of the disease. And treatment is also initiated based on the staging of the patient as well. So what are the clinical spectrum of COVID-19? About 40 to 50% of the patient are asymptomatic. It could be higher, depends on um, the study that we are looking at. About half of these asymptomatic patients are truly asymptomatic. That means they remain truly asymptomatic throughout the course of the disease. About half of these patients are pre-symptomatic. Basically, they can develop symptoms after initial diagnosis by PCR or RTK antigen. So in the, usually this type of patient are picked up during contact screening or travel screening. And later, after two to three days, they develop symptoms. But the most important thing about asymptomatic infection is people without symptoms can still have clinical abnormality as evidenced by abnormal CT scans. This is a study published uh, back in the early phase of the pandemic in China, where they performed CT scan in eight, 58 asymptomatic patients. And they found that 94.8% of the patient has ground glass obesity. And 30% of the patients subsequently developed symptoms. So meaning 70% of the patient remain asymptomatic and yet they have ground glass obesity in the CT scan. How about the rest of the patient who are symptomatic? So this is another study from China looking at 44,000 individuals with confirmed COVID-19. So 81% um, of the patient will have mild symptom, 14% develop severe symptom and 5% develop critical uh, illness. So most of the time, a patient who develop complication will belongs to this category of severe and critical illness. So who are the patients who might go into severe COVID-19 disease? Usually they are older patients, people 
of any age with a concurrent medical condition such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, chronic lung disease, and malignancy. This is a study published in UK um, following a cohort of patients. So they found that using multivariate survival analysis, as the patient age increases, the risk of mortality increases as well. So it's nicely shown here. And patient with underlying comorbidity has increased risk of mortality as well, including being a man as well. So what are the manifestation of severe COVID-19? The most common uh, manifestation will be hyperinflammatory phase leading to acute respiratory distress syndrome, cardiac complications such as acute cardiac injury, myocarditis, arrhythmias, and cardiomyopathy. And one of the peculiar complications of uh, severe COVID-19 involves thromboembolic complication. So many of our patients develop pulmonary embolism, stroke, even venous or arterial thrombosis. Then there are other target organ injury, such as acute kidney injury, liver injury, neurological complication, and then an immune complication termed as uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children and adults. So this diagram summarizes the extrapulmonary manifestation of COVID-19. So in addition to cardiac neurology, thromboembolic, hepatic and renal injury, there are also endocrine complications. So especially nowadays, we are using um, steroid to treat stage four and five patients. We are seeing a lot of uh, endocrine complications. I'm going to illustrate some of these complications by sharing with you some of the case studies uh, that we encounter in our hospital. So the first case is a 27-year-old male with no known medical illness. His BMI was, BMI is 28. He presented with a history of fever, dry cough, diarrhea two times a day, feeling really tired and with reduced appetite for five days. PCR was detected two days later and we diagnosed him as COVID-19 stage three because of the chest X-ray report. So this is a summary of the investigation done on our patient. So upon admission on day five of illness, he was started on Favipiravil because of the X-ray changes. Uh, he has fever, but vital sign was normal otherwise. So you can see the Abnormal, the most uh, abnormal result on day five of illness was the CRP, which was 15 milligram per liter, which is three times the upper range of normal. So as the day goes by and the week go by, um, he has persistent uh, fever on a daily basis. And we can see his CRP slowly climbing up and lymphocyte uh, reducing. So that time, since it was day five, um, I put him at the viral phase of the illness, but we know it's going to the end of the week. So we, we are watching him very closely in view of the increasing CRP. We predict he might be going into inflammatory phase or hyperinflammatory phase the following week. So we're watching him very closely over the weekend. 29th of November was Sunday. So it went up to 53.7. So. My comfort zone when I look at CRP was um, 50 milligram per liter. So beyond that, I usually will become quite uncomfortable because some of our patients develop hypoxemia when the CRP reach 30. So to, to reach 50, usually I'll be quite worried. However, I, I couldn't find any indication to start on dexamethasone because there was no hypoxemia. He was, no, he was not tachypnic. We even did the... Um, exercise test and there was no desaturation as well. Uh, on the following day, which was day 10, um, so um, when I saw him, he just came back from the washroom. So he was tachypneic, respiratory rate was uh, 26 and saturation was 94% on air. 
So I know um, he already reached stage four. Uh, so we decided to start him on, start him on IV dexamethasone. So um, the CRP came back later, which show a level of 90 milligram per liter. So after started uh, dexamethasone, he um, improved. CRP came down progressively over the next few days um, and he recovered. So at the same time, when the CRP went up, you can see the LDH and ferritin also went up together. So this is a serial chest X-ray performed on our patient. So this was on the day five of illness. And then five days later, you can see uh, infiltration over the left side of the lungs. It was many questions asked why it was more towards the left side of the lungs. So um, one of the reason is because our patient uh, always lie on the left hand side because the right hand side was the corridor. So there was not much uh, turning position been done. So, um, and when we took the x-ray, we can see the dependent area has more changes compared to the right-hand side. And after the dexamethasone was started, um, he recovered, uh, fever lies, um, CRP came down. Um, we managed to win off oxygen a few days later. And immediately, even immediately after we started on dexamethasone, he became more energetic. He, he talked more, appetite recovered. We can actually predict that he's uh, getting better just by um, looking and talking to him. Okay, this is a case number two, a 55-year-old lady with no known medical illness. Um, she was admitted uh, during the end of the first week of November at our hospital for stage three COVID-19. Uh, PCR was positive two days before that. However, she was asymptomatic. Stage three was diagnosed purely because of the chest X-ray report. And she was on room air throughout admission. She was very well discharged on day 11 after 10 days isolation with no complication. However, on day five after discharge, she started having fever associated with loss of appetite and coughing for three days with productive uh, whitish sputum and diarrhea for three to four episodes per day. And because of the symptoms, she went to the private hospital and they repeated the PCR and it was positive. So that they refer back to us. So on arrival, she has a temperature of 38. She was tachypneic. The saturation now was 94% on air. Um, and the most important finding was the CRP. It went up to 65.6. So this is the serial investigation. You can see the CRP. Um, the first two column was when she was admitted during the first time. You can see the CRP was monitored. At, she was actually monitored for three times and the CRP was were normal during the first admission. Um, but during the second admission on day 21 from the diagnosis of the COVID-19, you can see the CRP went up to 65.6%. Patient had fever, she was tachypneic, she needed oxygen. So we started her on dexamethasone 6 milligram OD and gradually we managed to win off oxygen two days later and the inflammatory marker continued to recover and normalize towards the end of uh, the hospitalization. So these are the serial chest X-ray of the patient. You can see during the second admission, there are more infiltration uh, over the lower lobes. Case number three, a 45-year-old lady uh, with underlying left hemithyroidectomy for thyroid nodules. And she had a BMI of 36, uh, presented with fever for one week since the end of December, uh, and cough for two days, anosmia for three days, and diarrhea for one day. Uh, she was admitted to the district hospital where they did an expert SARS-CoV-2 test and it was positive. Uh, that time there was a desaturation, so they categorized her as stage 4 COVID-19 and started on dexamethasone uh, 6 milligram uh, daily. The lymphocyte count was 1.8, CRP 23.5, so the CRP was not too high. Um, and she was started on dexamethasone and favipiravir because she was stage four and needed oxygen.
However, um, on day 10 of illness, she, she desaturated and needed high flow nasal cannula and she was transferred to our hospital. So this is the baseline chest X-ray and this was on day 10 of illness. Uh, five days later, you can see the, the increasing in infiltration which caused hypoxemia. CT scan was done showing a multifocal consolidation at the peripheral and dependent area with crazy paving suggestive of organizing pneumonia. So this was this is the summary of the serial investigation. You can see um, on the day of admission, the CRP was 23, then it went up to 45 when she needed high flow nasal cannula and she was given pulse without pregnisolone um, and then subsequently uh, it came down to normal. So the patient is still in our ward. Uh, she, um, yeah, and she is uh, improving. These are the X-ray um, after uh, after the pulse uh, without pregnisolone. Case number four: another young uh, patient, thirty-six-year-old gentleman with history of dyslipidemia and overweight, uh, was diagnosed as stage one COVID nineteen. Um, on the 4th of October, he completed 10 days isolation at the low risk isolation and quarantine center, was discharged well. CRP was normal, 3.7. A month later, he came, um, he came with chest pain, uh, sudden onset of chest pain while driving. Um, that was on the day 32 from the diagnosis of COVID-19. Uh, so he went to the private hospital. He was pain-free upon arrival the private physician noted some ECG changes and elevated troponin I. So he was referred to the cardiologist. They did echocardiogram. The LV function was preserved. They even did an angiogram showing mild disease at the distal left circumflex artery. Since the patient was pain-free, they, they planned for medical therapy and they admitted the patient for observation. Unfortunately, two days later, the pain recurred then they did a reload chorus. Um, similar finding, no angioplasty was performed to the patient. He developed hypotension during the procedure, needing a dopamine five mites. Um, then they noted the cardiac enzyme increase. So they decided to do more further tests. So you can see the serial cardiac enzyme um, troponin T from 430 went up to 2000. And this also uh, increment in creatinine kinase, AST, and LDH as well. The CRP was normal. The inflammatory markers, normal. Ferritin was normal. They repeated the PCR panel for the patient. It was normal. There was no SARS-CoV-2 detected uh, in the patient. So they even did a CT thorax for the patient. So they found bilateral posterior basal fibrosis. So this, this is a stage one patient who was discharged well and yet a month later, CT scan was done showing a, a basal fibrosis in the lung. So because of the chest pain, they did a cardiac MRI for the patient and there was extensive uh, sub-epicardial fibrosis. Um, and there's also ongoing myocardial edema in the basal to mid-septal and inferior wall and also pericarditis at the lateral wall as well. So the overall impression is acute or subacute, acute with subacute uh, myocarditis in the patient who had recent uh, COVID-19. So patient was started on um, uh, dexamethasone and the symptom uh, resolved and he was, uh, he's currently well. So myocarditis in COVID-19 patient uh, has been reported. So you can see this is a study um, published uh, by German investigator. So looking at 100 uh, COVID-19 patients who recovered from the illness. And when they did cardiac MRI in the patient, they found that surprisingly 78% of the patient has cardiac involvement. And 60% of this patient has ongoing myocardial uh, inflammation. Another study done in very young uh, athletes, competitive athletes, um, 26 uh, athletes. So they found that um, 12 of these patients reported mild symptoms. That means another half 
has no symptom as well. So this patient has no symptom or very mild um, symptoms, uh, but they do not have any uh, ECG changes. The echo finding was normal. The cardiac enzyme was normal. And when they did cardiac MRI in this patient, uh, they found four of the athletes has cardiac MRI findings consistent with myocarditis. And two of them has pericardial effusion as well. So the take home message um, uh, from this is even though patients have mild disease or asymptomatic disease, they can still have myocarditis or um, you know, um, crown glass uh, obesity in the lungs as demonstrated by earlier study as well. So case number five, 81-year-old lady with background history of diabetes and hypertension presented with fever and dry cough for two days at the district hospital. She was admitted on day two, however, deteriorated on day 16 and was intubated. Um, CRP went up to 123. She was started on IV methylprednisolone. So because of the difficulty in winning oxygen and there was persistent tachycardia, an echocardiogram show right strain pattern. And in addition to that, patient also had raised D-dimer as well. So they suspect a pulmonary embolism and CTPA show a filling defect in the left descending artery confirming pulmonary embolism. Um, this is another young patient, 47 year old female, a school club in the district hospital a background history of diabetes and macrovascular complication of stroke. Um, she was on basal bolus of insulin, aspirin, and statin. So she was initially admitted to the low-risk quarantine center. Then uh, she had a difficulty in breathing and was escalated back to the hospital there. Um, unfortunately, uh, she needed high-flow nasal cannula and was subsequently ventilated as well. So you can see the CRP went up to 205 and she was started on methylprednisolone as well. And you can see she responded uh, very well to the methylprednisolone. Uh, however, the D-dimer suddenly shot up to 35 um, and we decided to do a CTPA for her, which showed acute pulmonary embolism. She was started on anticoagulation, full dose anticoagulation and she subsequently improved and currently on room air as well. So this is the CT finding showing acute pulmonary embolism in the right middle lobe pulmonary artery and segmental branches of both upper and lower lobes pulmonary arteries. So now we move on to discuss about COVID-19 coagulopathy. So during the early phase of COVID-19 pandemic in China, the investigator there has noted a very high uh, prevalence of um, thromboembolic complication there. Subsequently, when, when the pandemic spread to Europe, they also found similar findings. So uh, when we look at all this uh, uh, cohort study of ICU patient, you can see there's a range of um, reported VTE rate ranging from 11.7 up to 69%. And in China, because they started first, uh, thromboprophylaxis was not started. But even when thromboprophylaxis was started later, you can see the rate of thromboembolic complication was still uh, ranging from 11 to 69%. These are ICU uh, type of patients. So compared to historical control um, of pulmonary embolism in ARDS patient, you can see um, in this French study, um, it was much higher compared to historical control of 2.1%. So when they compare ICU versus non-ICU COVID-19 patient, you can see the ICU patient has much higher risk of thromboembolic complication, which was 20.6 versus 6.1%. So um, meta-analysis done um, showed that the pool estimate of DVT was 16%, higher in China compared to Western country and higher in ICU population at 23% versus non-ICU patient at 5%. Another meta-analysis done in uh, 
COVID-19 patient with pulmonary embolism also show um, the, the PrEP incidence of about 15.3%, so roughly about 15 to 20%. The, the other finding about this meta-analysis was the mortality is very high in this um, meta-analysis, up to 45.1% compared to 4% in historical control. So pulmonary embolism is common, especially in ICU population and carry a high mortality. In autopsy study of lung damage in COVID-19 um, from this cohort of patients, seven of 12 patients had unsuspected bilateral DVT and four of them died from pulmonary embolism, meaning from this study, many of the cases might go undetected without post-mortem study. So what is the underlying pathophysiology of thromboembolic complication? The central feature postulated is thought to be due to endothelitis. So what happened was, as we know, uh, our endothelial cells in the blood vessel has many ACE2 receptor. So the virus can bind to the receptor causing inflammation. So if you look back at workout triad, there are three important components um, predisposing our patient to get a thromboembolic complication. So the first one, as uh, we have discussed just now, um, is vascular endothelitis leading to endothelial dysfunction. Then the second one is a venous stasis. The third component is uh, hypercoagulopathy. So this is a very nice diagram illustrating the process of thromboembolic uh, thrombosis complication. So the virus binds to the ACE2 receptor in the endothelial cells leading to systemic and vascular inflammation. The process produces um, fibrinogen, interleukin-6, CRP, factor 5, factor 8, and one Willebrand factor. All this leads to hypercoagulopathy, hypercoagulopathy and lead to deep vein thrombosis. At the same time, um, the viral invasion activates the immune system, leading to endothelial cells um, um, inflammation and injury, um, and this predisposes uh, patient to get thrombosis as well. So the third component is venous stasis. This can be due to sludge or immobility, and altogether, all these factors leads to deep vein thrombosis. That's why patient with COVID-19 um, has higher risk of uh, thrombosis. There are laboratory predictors of thrombosis as we have seen uh, before. Uh, these are fibrinogen, uh, CRP, ferritin, um, and D-dimer as well. So um, that's why uh, the guidance on thromboprophylaxis is to start a patient who are hospitalized uh, with a prophylactic dose of anticoagulation. Um, in our guideline, uh, we recommend starting a thromboprophylaxis in stage four and stage five patient. These are Western uh, country um, recommendation. They don't admit uh, a symptomatic patient to hospital. So um, those admitted to their hospital uh, are those patients with severe and critical illness. So uh, now we move towards a uh, neurological complication. So the first question that we want to ask ourselves is COVID-19 neuroinvasive. So we have seen from early discussion, um, our respiratory airways contain many uh, cells uh, uh, which have ACE2 receptor. So are there any ACE2 receptor in the central nervous system? Yes. Uh, most of the ACE2 receptor are in the motor cortex areas around the ventricles, the ventral lateral part of the medulla, and olfactory bulb as well. In fact, many of the neuron cells, microglia, astrocytes, oligodendrocytes has um, ACE2 receptor. So potentially, this are uh, this area can be um, 
can be attacked by the virus if they manage to reach the central nervous system. So um, there are two main uh, hypotheses on how the virus can spread to the brain. So the first one through the, the vascular system, as we know, the brain cells, the brain uh, has blood supply. So the virus can travel through the uh, blood vessels. It can infect the endothelial cells, causing endothelial injury and disruption of the blood brain barrier. And then some of the infected uh, white blood cell can go through the blood brain barrier to the uh, brain as well. So the other mechanism is through the olfactory epithelium. So uh, epithelial cells has many ACE2 receptor. So um, from there, it can infect the olfactory nerve and then through a retrograde spread, it can travel from the olfactory epithelium to the olfactory bulb as well. And from there, it might spread to the brain. So these are the hypotheses of how things might happen. So the next question is, can viral invasion cause meningitis and encephalitis? Um, then we will go through um, other complications of uh, central nervous system infection, um, especially hypoxic brain damage, thromboembolic complication like stroke and neurological autoimmune disorders. So first let's uh, discuss about viral invasion. So as we discussed, just now, central nervous system contain many ACE2 receptor. So um, anosmia is a very common uh, presentation of COVID-19, um, up to 10%, even higher in some case series. So the question is, is anosmia caused by mucosa infection or nerve um, involvement? So the second thing is, uh, is encephalitis uh, common? So there are very few uh, case report of uh, encephalitis. Uh, I think less than 10 reported. Uh, most of the time, the CSF finding was normal. Um, very few has positive PCR. So from the case report, it seems that encephalitis and meningitis are quite rare in COVID-19 patient. When they look at post-mortem study, uh, looking at the concentration of virus in the brain, they found that the highest concentration of virus is actually in the uh, mucosa, uh, olfactory mucosa. So very few of the specimen contain uh, virus. Uh, if you, there are only three patients with virus detected in the olfactory bulb. So another post-mortem uh, study done uh, show 18 of the patient only showing hypoxic brain damage. There was no sign of encephalitis. There was no sign of uh, uh, cytoplasmic uh, viral staining in the specimen. And there are very few virus detected in uh, five patients. And the hypothesis was the virus was actually in the brain from the blood rather than causing uh, inflammation in the brain. How about stroke? Um, up to 5% of hospitalized patients develop stroke. Uh, these are published by the Chinese investigator. So the same mechanism that caused thrombosis um, is hypothesized to occur in stroke patients. So because of the vascular endothelial dysfunction and coagulopathy, these patients are predisposed uh, to develop stroke. Usually these are large vessel thrombosis. Many stroke patients have infarction of the lungs kidneys and brain as well. There's also another entity called critical illness associated uh, microbleeds. So especially in ICU patient who has uh, reduced uh, in GCS or has prolonged coma. So this patient have microbleeds in the brain because of hypoxia and microangiopathy causing diffuse damage to the brain. And the prognosis is not good, um, usually patients will have cognitive uh, impairment and disability. It's very difficult to diagnose. You need the MRI susceptibility weighted imaging to see. It's, it's not picked up by T1 or T2 imaging. Then the other complication uh, involving the central nervous system 
and the peripheral nervous system is autoimmune disorder. There are small studies and case reported, case report uh, published uh, regarding Guillain-Barre syndrome, transverse myelitis, Adam, and acute necrotizing encephalopathy. So there are still a lot of things that we don't know about central nervous system complication. Uh, Professor Tom Solomon has summarized what we know so far uh, in January. Um, anosmia, encephalopathy, and stroke are the most common neurological uh, syndrome associated with COVID-19. Uh, biopsy sample suggests anosmia result predominantly from infection of the non-neuronal cells in olfactory epithelium and olfactory bulb. And a high proportion of patients admitted to ICU develop delirium. And this and evidence to date suggests this is caused by microvascular and inflammatory complication. There is not much evidence to suggest um, there is uh, encephalitis. The virus can cause uh, encephalitis. So even though the virus can be detected in the brain with PCR, um, but the evidence to date suggests it is mostly come from vascular and also immune cells rather than uh, caused by direct uh, infection of the neurons. Okay, um, I'm going to talk about uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children and adults. This is a very rare complication of COVID-19. Uh, during the beginning of the presentation, uh, I put a note of this uh, syndrome at the end of the hyperinflammatory phase because that's what was thought um, to happen. So um, during the, the, the pandemic in New York City, they, they noticed uh, after a surge of cases of COVID-19 uh, patient, about two to four weeks after that, they noticed this sudden surge of uh, ill children coming to their hospital with multi-system uh, involvement, shock, and some mimics Kawasaki syndrome. So Miss um, C now has become a recognized syndrome, um, was first reported as hyperinflammatory syndrome with variable features of Kawasaki uh, disease. So CDC has coined a case definition for Miss C. Um, this is the case definition of uh, Miss C, any individual aged less than 21 presenting with fever, laboratory evidence of inflammation, and evidence of clinically severe disease needing hospitalization with multi-system organ involvement and other diagnosis has been ruled out. And there's a evidence of recent SARS-CoV-2 infection within four weeks prior to onset of symptoms. So, um, so this uh, syndrome characterized by hyperinflammation. Um, most cases occur several weeks after the confirmation of SARS-CoV-2. In fact, many many children has no uh, diagnosis of COVID-19 before, and they only can diagnose it uh, retrospectively using antibody tests. So it's characterized by fever. Uh, markedly elevated inflammatory biomarkers and multi-organ system involvement, frequently with prominent GI symptoms. It is also characterized by shock and cardiac injury, typically involving elevated cardiac biomarkers, left ventricular dysfunction, coronary dilatation, and often they need uh, inotropic supports. So this is very important for us because um, in Malaysia, um, adult medicine um, take care of a patient from age 12 onwards, you see. So we might be seeing some of these patients coming with a uh, missed C. At the same time, there are case series of adult patients being reported as well, um, mimicking the similar syndrome uh, in children. Often this patient came with multi-organ dysfunction, especially cardiac dysfunction, needing uh, inotropes um, after the initial diagnosis of COVID-19. 
So we need to be aware of this uh, um, MISC and MISA. Often when, when they did uh, M cardiac MRI, patient has uh, myocarditis in this patient. So now I'm going to the final section of the uh, presentation. We are going to talk about the long-term complication of COVID-19. So there are many studies uh, been published uh, at the moment. Um, there are evolving definition of what is considered post-COVID syndrome. This is from the British group um, defined as uh, symptoms present for more than 12 weeks with no alternative diagnosis. So these are study published um, looking at patients who are discharged and were at day 14 to day 21 of illness, day 14 and day 14 to 21 days of diagnosis. You can see um, most of the patient still having profound fatigue, cough, loss of taste and smell, dyspnea, uh, chest pain, abdominal pain and confusion which some reported as brain fog. Going to one to two months after discharge, you can see many patients um, still experience fatigue and breathlessness, and some experience post-traumatic stress disorder as well. And anxiety and depression uh, seems to be common as well, including concentration problems, uh, musculoskeletal and rheumatology uh, pain. So um, we can see more patients um, reported fatigue, breathlessness, and psychological distress in the ICU group, especially. Going to two months of uh, discharge, you can see many patients still experience uh, fatigue and dyspnea. Only about 12.6% of patients were completely free of symptoms. So 55% had three or more symptoms. So you can see even after two months after discharge, some patient has significant uh, uh, symptoms even two months after discharge. And most of them, half of them reported worsening quality of life compared to before infection. So this uh, not unknown in coronavirus infection, looking at uh, SARS uh, epidemic back in 2001, uh, you can see um, this like uh, ranging from 13 to 13 to 36 months following SARS infection. Many survivor of uh, patient, many including healthcare worker in Toronto, continue to experience uh, significant musculoskeletal pain, fatigue depression and sleep disorder 13 to 36 months after discharge. This is another study looking at one year outcomes of SARS survival. So you can see uh, one year after discharge, majority of the SARS survival has normal pulmonary function and yet 18% uh, of them experience significant reduction in distance walk in six minutes and 17% have not returned to work by one year. And many pay uh, visit uh, to psychiatry and psychology uh, practitioner. Not only patient, even their caregiver reported decline in the mental component score. So um, from this study, we know that most SARS survivor, even though they have good physical recovery, but uh, some patient and their caregiver uh, reported a significant reduction in mental health even one year later from the infection. How about long-term data from SARS infection? We don't have long-term data for, for SARS-CoV infection at the moment, um, but looking at SARS-CoV-1 uh, infection, this is a 15-year follow-up of lung and bone outcomes. Um, you can see uh, pulmonary damage and function decline mostly recovered by then, uh, especially the greatest recovery occurred within two years of rehabilitation. Femoral head necrosis induced by large doses of pulse steroid are usually not progressive and partially reversible. Then there's this uh, post-ICU syndrome. 
uh, which occur in ICU patient. Um, this can um, last beyond ICU hospitalization as long as five to 15 years. And those patients at risk of post-ICU uh, syndrome um, has sepsis, delirium, prolonged medical, uh, mechanical ventilation and multi-organ failure. There are many combinations of pulmonary issue, physical disability and psychological impacts in this patient. So meaning being admitted to ICU come with a, a potential a long-term uh, complication. So the take-home message uh, from my presentation, we know now there, there are many uh, range of uh, clinical manifestation and complication of COVID-19. Some go beyond hospital discharge, some last um, even longer than uh, three to six months. We know from SARS-CoV-1 infection, it can last many years. Um, from a clinician point of view, when we see a patient with COVID-19, we need to correlate the clinical findings with the phase of disease and the stage of illness to determine um, the to determine the next uh, step of treatment. The third take-home message uh, from me: for asymptomatic and mild cases, even though they are well, they can represent later during the hyperinflammatory phase. Uh, especially when we look at the uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome of children and adults. And finally, we, we need to look out for a post-COVID uh, syndrome and we need program for, for this group of patients which uh, need to involve uh, rehabilitation, psychiatry and from our perspective, we need to in, in involve our family medicine uh, physician as well in the development of these uh, post-COVID treatment programs. Uh, with that, I would like to thank uh, all of you uh, for uh, joining the webinar today. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Hengi. Uh, you had a lot to cover. Uh, I appreciate the, all the time you have taken to try to be as complete as possible, but it's not possible. We, we cannot talk for, for five hours, obviously. Um, thank you very much. Now, uh, there are a lot of questions you need to go through, um, but uh, I will remind everyone that last week we had presentation from Dr. Yasmin and she had covered uh, some of the complications that Dr. Lee spoke about. Obviously, the hyperinflammatory uh, part of phase of the, of the infection, especially pulmonary uh, findings. So perhaps we will try to focus on the other complications rather than repeat the same one. Uh, having said that, next week there will be a webinar focusing on the care uh, of COVID-19 in the critical care setting. So once again, some same issues might come up. So based on uh, these webinars before and after Dr. Lee's, uh, I will try to focus on topics that may not be covered by the other speakers. So I, uh, I ask all those who have asked questions to bear with me because we're trying to cover as much as possible. So Hengi, uh, are you ready? <laughs> all right. Okay, come, let's talk. Let's, First question I can see is, I think linked to the issue of, of, of uh, anticoagulation. I think we all know that there's a key part of our management, especially for our patients in category four and five. The question is, how long do we continue anticoagulation if there's no evidence of PE, but the D-dimer remains high? Um, the, the recommendation, uh say uh, we, we start anticoagulation in stage four and five uh, patient, meaning patient who needs oxygen. Of course, people with added risk factor of immobilization, we also start uh, uh, thromboprophylaxis for them. So when we look at um, guidelines uh, from uh, NIH, um, they also say uh, any hospitalized patient should be started on thromboprophylaxis. So that's the standard of care. So when we go back and look at this question, how long do we continue anticoagulation if there's no evidence of PE, but D-dimer was high. So I think we need to 
revisit and assess the patient and trying to find out why the patient has a very high D-dimer or high D-dimer. So there are many causes of uh, raised D-dimer, thromboembolism, uh, thrombosis is part of it. Uh, sepsis can also cause raised D-dimer, even pregnancy, um, trauma. Trauma can cause raised D-dimer. So there are many differential diagnoses for D-dimer. So if the D-dimer is high in a well patient, I would want to revisit the patient, examine the patient um, to see whether there's other causes of uh, raised D-dimer. So for a very ill patient, then uh, I think the approach would be slightly different. It really depends on whether patient needs a ventilation, a mechanical ventilation. So even though um, um, you know, the pulmonary embolism is not shown in the CT, I think it's good to always have a discussion with the radiologist to see, um, you know, have another reassessment, uh, look at the uh, other area where thrombosis can occur as well, especially DBT, uh, thrombosis right. of the catheter and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you, Hingi. I think obviously we need to correlate with the clinical findings and the clinical situation of the patient. And we shouldn't just uh, look at the D-dimer uh, by itself. Uh, a follow-up question would be linked to also uh, anticoagulation. Uh, this question is, is it common to see isolated coagulopathy in COVID-19 patients? I presume the person who's asking is talking about patients with COVID-19 who are otherwise don't have other complications, but just coagulopathy alone. So do we often see that? Um, I think it's quite rare. Um, so if you look at the if you look at the literature, so ICU patients generally they, they have a uh, prevalence of uh, 15 to 20% uh, incidence of uh, thrombosis. So for non-ICU patient, that's about 5%. So uh, these are hospitalized patients in uh, Western country, meaning um, at least they, they are admitted because of severe disease or probably underlying comorbidity. So uh, if we are talking about maybe stage one or two, um, I think that the risk of thrombosis is pretty low. So, but I, I'm not aware of a study, um, you know, definitely I, I'm not seeing any of my patients uh, who are well with isolated um, uh, thrombosis. Yeah, I, I think the experience is fairly similar in other places as well. Certainly in my limited experience, looking at post-COVID cases, uh, most of the patients with, with coagulopathies tend to patients who are much more ill, patients in category four and five, and obviously with other complications linked as well. So I guess if the patient is otherwise well, uh, the risk of coagulopathy drops significantly. Now, I'm gonna move on to another area which uh, we don't talk enough about, but for many patients who come in with uh, a pneumonia with COVID-19, especially if they are in category four and five, uh, we frequently see physicians putting empirical use of antibiotics at the same time. And obviously, everyone wants to cover for bacterial sepsis in a patient who's very ill. I understand that. But obviously, we are also concerned about things like antimicrobial uh, resistance. The question here specifically is looking at, is staph pneumonia common in post-COVID infections? Uh, so perhaps, Hingi, you'd like to talk a little bit about infections, the concurrent infections that you see in managing COVID patients? Yeah, there are quite a number of publications uh, been published about this. Um, uh, generally, for, for non-ICU patients, uh, the, the incidence of concurrent bacterial infection range from uh, about 7 to 8%. So it's not, it's not high. So uh, in ICU patients, that's probably a double you know, to 14%. But uh, compared to other viral infection, generally the incidence of concurrent bacterial infection is uh, low in COVID-19. So uh, we, we, we are quite fortunate here in, uh, in our hospital. We, we have a pro-cal. So uh, many of our patients who, who progress to stage four, when stage four, stage five, when we did the pro-cal, they, they um, most of the time they came back as very low, 0 0.01 or something like that. 
and the, the blood culture and you know the septic uh, the culture are all normal. So um, I'm quite confident uh, the, the rate published uh, does mimic the true incidence of uh, concurrent uh, bacterial infection in COVID-19 patients. It's pretty low. Right. So I, 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 as I mentioned earlier, I think I can understand why people start empirical antibiotics when the patient comes in very ill at the outset. However, I think it's important if we do that, I think once the results come in and if you have procalcitonin, uh, I think over the next few days, I think we all should de-escalate as fast as we can, if possible. Uh, so uh, thank you, uh, Hingi, on that score. I'm going to move to another area of management uh, with, and about steroids, because that's one of the key areas that, of intervention that we have now in the care of COVID-19. Uh, two questions on, on steroids. Uh, first question is, um, how do you manage oxygen-dependent patients who are still dependent on oxygen for more than one month, despite having tapered uh, DEXA in the post-COVID-19 DEXA or tapering prednisolone, you mean, uh, despite tapering prednisolone in the post-COVID stage five cases? We, we are seeing more and more patients uh, who has this complication. So many of them develop organizing pneumonia. Uh, some of them has lung fibrosis as well. So usually um, during the initial phase, we try to prevent patient progressing to this stage of hyperinflammation um, because when it does occur, then there's a chance that uh, our patient will develop uh, lung fibrosis and it can um, become irreversible. So um, when it comes to about a month and patients still uh, needing oxygen, um, even before, before that, we, we actually get our respiratory team to be involved. Uh, we, we do have multidisciplinary uh, team uh, managing uh, this group of patients. So um, in terms of inflammation, as much as possible, we, we taper steroid um, um, based on the inflammatory markers. We want to reverse the inflammatory process. Then there's, on, there's a chance for the patient um, to have a good uh, recovery and rehabilitation. So uh, to shorten the answer, um, I consult um, our respiratory uh, physician uh, a lot during this stage of the illness uh, because uh, they need uh, a lot of assessment. Right. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Tingyi. I'm going to take on the last question uh, uh, because time is running out. And I think this is an important question. We have had thousands of patients with COVID going through our system in the last one year. With all the complications that you've spoken about, some are already fairly well established, some still very much in the very woolly stage of, of understanding. How are we following up all these post-COVID patients? What is the follow-up plan for this? Yeah, I think the, this, uh, the ideal uh, situation uh, will, be a post, will be a dedicated program where patients are seen um, you know, by a specialized team um, who gain experience, um, you know, by seeing the patient and following them through. Um, so um, overseas, they have a post-COVID clinic, which is good. They have program, they have guideline. So, uh, but looking at, uh, you know, local situation, uh, for example, in, in my center here, uh, we are already like uh, coming to the six month of the, um, you know, the pandemic in Kota Kinabalu. So most of our manpower are actually uh, exhausted in the hospital. So, um, so we rely a lot on, on our family medicine uh, specialists to coordinate the post-COVID care. So they have published a local guideline, um, you know, um, with other discipline as well, uh, especially rehabilitation, uh, the respiratory physician, uh, uh, psychiatrist, and the cardiologist. So this is uh, going to be a multidisciplinary approach involving uh, everybody uh, who are uh, involved in uh, COVID-19 care. So I, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, what is ideal, uh, you know, and what we can do uh, at our local level does uh, determine uh, what is the best uh, for the uh, program at that time, you see. So I hope the, the level of cases will come down and I can continue to run my post-COVID clinic. <laughs> I, I, I wish that for you too, Hindi, for the cases to come down. Uh, I think we wish that for the whole country. 
such quickly just to summarize your your last uh, last answer. Uh, ideally, I think as we have decentralized our COVID care, that many hospitals now look after COVID, including private hospitals. I think the, that local hospitals should provide the follow up, and whether there's one specialized team looking after them, because all this data needs to be collected, and we're still unsure how some of these complications will pan out. Uh, clearly, I think the people who are very involved in the post-care of COVID are the respiratory physicians, neurologists, and cardiologists to some degree. Uh, but I think more and more doctors, generalists, will have to look, provide post-COVID care as well. Because I think uh, looking at what Hengi has told us, I think the list of complications, not just the acute, but even those more chronic uh, complications can be actually continue to grow over time as we understand this disease better. Uh, so with that, uh, Hingi, thank you very much for your presentation. Thank you very much for being very clear and concise, as, as concise as you could be in a very huge topic that they have given you. So uh, if you are a bit upset with the topic, please call Dr. Anusha to send in your complaints. But we appreciate uh, your time and effort for putting this, this talk together. So Hingi, thank you very much. And I'd like to thank once again uh, the co-organizers, my ICID as well as ICR, for putting this together, the secretary here, the ladies who have been running the show, uh, doing an excellent job behind the scenes. So before we depart, I uh, just want to give some housekeeping. Uh, the slides from Dr. Hingi, uh, a slide set will come up by tomorrow in our website. You can look for it there. Uh, and next week, we have the third of our series, and this will look at the care of COVID-19 in the critical care setting. So for all of you intensivists, or intensivist wannabe, uh, I urge you to, to come on board next Wednesday. So with that, uh, I thank uh, Hingi once again and everyone else for tuning in uh, this afternoon. Thank you very much and have a safe week and happy Chinese New Year for those who are celebrating. Uh, we can all save on Ang Pao's this week. Of course, you can transfer money, but you know, we'll try to save money. Thank you very much, everyone. Goodbye. Okay, thank you, uh, Dato. Thank you, everybody.